Amen. Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me. Our passage this morning is in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We're looking at the first seven verses of this chapter. You can also find the passage for today on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of our message. This morning, we are continuing our Advent series. Uh, This time of year, we spend a particular focus considering and contemplating the birth of Christ, the significance of it, and what it means for us today. And for this year in particular, we have decided to study Old Testament prophecies. We're looking at those foretellings. We're looking at those promises that were made that a Savior would come and that He would bring hope and peace and restoration Last week, we began our series by looking at Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, one of the first places we see this promise made in the act of judgment against the serpent. God says, but the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. You will bruise his heel. In that act of you are going to be defeated, God promises hope, hope through a child, really hope to do that which Adam failed to do. And jumping forward a little bit in the biblical narrative, today we're going to consider a well-beloved passage from Isaiah's prophecy. We read it last week as our um, Advent passage. And this passage this morning is going to teach us a little bit more about that wonderful child, that Savior who would come. And I just had to mention this morning, I have a special admiration for this passage. Um, it, It has been ingrained in me. And when it came time for me to take my licensure exams, uh, the, the first half of my ordination exams for our denomination, I was asked to give specific examples of where we see Christ in the Old Testament. And I rattled off a few, um, but um, our pastor, Pastor Tony Felich, was currently teaching through Isaiah. If you were with us during that time, you remember that study. And he said, Aaron, what about in Isaiah? And I proudly looked up at him and said, Isaiah 6 is where I would go. And he's like, are you sure about that? And I said, yes, I am. And he's like, well, I wouldn't if I were you. And so I got it wrong. He was, of course, looking for Isaiah 9. He lovingly pulled me aside after uh, that grilling, um, I mean, examination. And he said, now, Aaron, I'm asking this question again tomorrow on the floor of Presbytery in front of all the ministers. Don't get it wrong. Piece of cake. No worries. I've got this. And again, we started the grilling or examination. We made it through two of the three exams that morning, and we got back on the Old Testament, and he barely got the words out of his mouth. Aaron, where in the Old Testament do you find Christ? I didn't even, I skipped all the other ones, um, the 23rd Psalm, Genesis. I said, Isaiah 6, and, and Tony just hangs his head, and he's like, no, no. And then I actually tried to justify that you can find him in Isaiah 6, which I think you can, as Isaiah enters the throne room of God. And, and stands in God's presence and God's glory. Um, but for this morning, and the answer I should have given, is this beautiful passage that very clearly shows us that a Savior would be born, and that Savior would be Christ the Lord. Um, and so please look with me at Isaiah 9 um, as we read the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And really the heart of this passage, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go with me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon this time? Dear Heavenly Father, we learn through the prophet Isaiah that if you do not, through the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this day, seeing we will not see and hearing we will not hear, while we may interact with your word, we will not place its truths inside our heart unless you go before us. And so, oh, Father, as already has been prayed today for this dear covenant child and for us as a congregation, go before us. Send your Spirit Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this morning that we may rest in the truth, the hope, the encouragement, and the love that is present and that is seen clearly in Isaiah chapter 9. Lord, would you be with us in this time? Would you bless the reading and the hearing of your word? Would you do it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen. Isaiah chapter 9 really begins with a sobering message, doesn't it? Isaiah is prophesying of a time quickly coming when the nation would be invaded. And if you look back, you look back to Isaiah chapter 8, and and we'll spend some time in Isaiah chapter 7, even prior to that, we read that judgment would come because of disobedience, because of a lack of trusting in God, a lack of resting in His Word and His promise. We can look to the king, King Ahaz. Ahaz was commanded to trust in God. Ahaz was commanded to protect the people. And yet, he was doing exactly the opposite. The people were worshiping idols instead of Yahweh. The people were falling into one of their cycles, which is quite unfortunate, but often the case in the life of his people. When things got easy... They trusted in themselves. They rested in themselves. They rested in their own good works, their own ability to produce, and they turned their back, their eyes on God. Often with the sad refrain, within two generations, the children forgot the God of their fathers. This is why Isaiah opens up this chapter with a, with a harsh word, doom, or gloom and anguish. Why are they in doom and anguish? Because they're not trusting in God. 
There's almost a darkness over the land. You see it metaphorically here, but all is not lost. God, while ready to bring judgment, and he would bring judgment upon his people, also promises a great light, a light that will shine over and against the darkness, a light that will come through a child being born. And in our text today, I want us to consider, as we consider this Advent season, four descriptors, four titles for that child. Christ will be. And would you follow along with me, really, as we focus on verse 6 here, uh, but using the entire chapter as context to see Jesus Christ as wonderful counselor, as mighty God, as everlasting Father, and as Prince of Peace. And there is one item that we need to understand. It's, it's a literary, um, uh, it's, a, it's a situation going on in our text. I want you to appreciate uh, before we even get into him being a mighty counselor. Um, let's see if you caught it. Verse 1, sentence 1, is different from a literary perspective from the rest of the section. Verse 1, sentence 1, is different than everything else in our section. Um, and this is on purpose. Uh, Isaiah is no fool. He, he well understands tense and structure and sentences far better than I do at times. But what does he do? After the first sentence in the first verse, he speaks in the past tense. Now, isn't that odd in a prophecy? It, isn't it odd if you're, you're projecting or, or prophesying what will happen to speak of it as if it's already happened? Do you think you would use the future tense there? Well, actually, Isaiah is, is using a form of, um, of literary writing that says, what I'm going to tell you is so certain, is so sure, is so guaranteed to be true that I'm going to speak of it in the past tense as if it's already happened because that's how sure I am of what I tell you. I tell you this as if it has already taken place because by God's grace, it has and it will. And so this should be, this passage, even for that alone, should be a wonder of hope and encouragement and strength. Much less the, the, the particular focus that we have this morning as we look at what this promise would bring and, and who would bring it. But this promise, this hope, this that Isaiah speaks of in confidence in the past tense, it comes through a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And think about it. Look at verses 3 through 5. Think about the implications of this son, of this child. Look at verse 1, doom, gloom, darkness, sadness, dismay. You know, you think gray, you think Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You read verse 1 and you're like, oh. But then look at verses 3 through 5. Listen to what's going to happen because of this son. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice as if the joy of the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken it as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. Joy, peace, contentment, rest, victory over your enemies destruction of the invading armies. That is what this child would bring. That is what this child would bring. And he would bring it in a, in a number of ways. One of those ways this child would bring it is by being a wonderful counselor. 
And really, to, to get a sense of what it means to be a wonderful counselor, we need to go back two chapters. It, 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 this one in particular works best by contrasting it. And so I want you to think about someone that wasn't a wonderful counselor, someone who wasn't a wise counselor, and that is King Ahaz. If you flip back to, to, to chapter 7, we get that Isaiah has been sent to this king. Isaiah has been sent to the king Ahaz, king of Judah. Now, I apologize, and if you catch it, I might do it. I've worked really hard. I'm tempted always to say Israel, um, but this is the king of Judah. So just know that we're talking the king of Judah here, and, and catch me later if I, if I mess that up. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord sends Isaiah the prophet to the king. He sends him to the king and says, encourage the king. Tell the king to wait for me, to trust in me, to rest in me, and I will provide that which you need. We see also as we consider this passage and we look at it more broadly, there's a war. There's, there's nations waging war against Jerusalem. Israel is trying to attack. The king of Aram is trying to attack. And this is a beautiful moment. This is, this is um, an opportunity for victory for Ahaz. All he's got to do is trust in Yahweh. And Yahweh will give him the victory. And Yahweh will take care of the enemies. And Yahweh will provide. And Yahweh will be glorified. It, it, it could not be any easier. Trust in God. That's all you have to do. However... <laughs> Ahaz does not trust in God. Isaiah comes and he tells him directly, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Oh, that someone would come tell us that our enemies, that those that oppress us, that our greatest challenges are nothing but a smoldering stump. However, even in the words of encouragement, Ahaz does not do the right thing. You look to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, we learn as we think about the life of Ahaz. He doesn't trust in God. He actually goes to Assyria and says, hey, I got this little problem. Can you help me out? His sovereign Lord is offering him victory and he goes to an opposing nation. In anger, Isaiah says to him, God is going to give you a sign. You refuse to ask, but he's going to give it anyway. God will give you victory. And then really the, the, the chief statement of, of Ahaz, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. To put it differently, I do not need you, God. That's the king. That, that's the king over the people. And, and, and as it goes often in the Old Testament, so is the heart of the king, so is the heart of the people. That's the heart of the people in Judea. I will not put you to the test. I will not ask for this. When God's even telling him to. We're not talking about one of those circumstances where somebody asks for a sign and God's like, you don't need a sign. God's saying, you need a sign. Ask for it. And he says, no. This is what we'd call an unwise counselor. This is what we would call an um, unfit or um, ignorant or we could even say despicable uh, counselor. Why? Ahaz does not trust in God. Proverbs say, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. To reject God is to be a fool. Ahaz is a fool. Ahaz doesn't listen to wise counsel. So not only does he not trust in God, he's not trusting in the people that trust in God that's telling him what to do. 
his counselors, his people who are giving him guidance, namely Isaiah here, he rejects. He speaks in anger to God's servant. You can go through the Old Testament there. I, I can think of a story in particular where a few she-bears come out of the woods and maul some children for speaking foolishly to God's servant. Each of these is, is, is an evidence, is a proof that Ahaz, is, he is not a wise king. But the child to be born, that Savior, that Messiah figure, he would be wise. He would be wonderful. And if we flip forward in our Bibles, if we look, I know I love to just read the whole thing, but I, we don't have time. Um, look at John, John chapter 14. If Ahaz is the picture of unwise rule and an unwise counselor, what does a wise counselor look like? Well, it looks like this. John chapter 14, the words of our Savior. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself, that you know where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, let's contrast the two. Christ offers peace. Ahaz in the midst of war, turmoil, violence. Christ, peace. Ahaz rejects God. Jesus says, look to the Father. Ahaz rests in himself and in his friends and his, his, the nations, specifically the Assyrians. Jesus says, trust me, rest in me, hope in me. In this season of worry for the disciples, Jesus calms their fears, assures them of his plan, points them to the Father, and demonstrates his ability to save them from their sin. That's wise counsel. That's what a wonderful counselor looks like. One who points us not to their own strength, their own ability, their own hope, but one that points us to God and does it humbly. And so we see Christ as a wise counselor. And the only way he can do this, the only way he can be a wise counselor in this way is if he's also, what our text says, mighty God. And this is a brief statement. This is, these are short, pointed statements. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. But oh, there is power in those two words. There is so much Isaiah saying here. He is saying that child will be Almighty God. Not like God, not will become God, not will be godly in his conduct or in his actions, but that he will be God. This is the only way salvation would work for the people. And again, I, I look to the prophet, or I look to John. I love it. In, in John chapter 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I I really and truly believe that John had in mind Isaiah 9 when he wrote these words. Because what does Isaiah say? You are in darkness, you need light. What does John say? The light has come. And his name is Jesus. Jesus was and is God. And oh, we could, we could just read John 1. We could just read John. Oh, would you walk away with a sense that Jesus Christ is God? John does a phenomenal job of that in his gospel writing, making sure you understand Jesus is God. And while this is a small point, um, it is something that we must not overlook. Isaiah is promising or prophesying a deep and real hope for the people of Judah. He's offering them a hope that can and will be fulfilled. Remember, he's speaking in the past tense because in his mind it's already been done. This can't be done by man. Man can't do it. They would know. They've trusted in man. They've trusted in leaders. They've trusted in kings. They've trusted in rulers. They've all fell flat. But God himself could do it. And God himself would do it. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, I need to admit, because commentators admit, this is a little tricky word choice here. You, you may find yourself going, now wait a minute, you've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why, why are you picking that word here, Isaiah? You, you could have picked something different. But I, I want to make a, a few points as to why this is a good word choice. Jesus would be everlasting Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ and God the Father are one, as are all members one in the Trinity. It is a divine mystery, but it is affirmed throughout Scripture, and thus it is not a contradiction to call Christ the everlasting Father. Again, what did we read in John? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so from the words, from the mouth of our very own Savior, the fact that he's called Father shouldn't give us anxiety. Two, this statement has more to do, there's, you lean heavier on that word everlasting. It, it really is trying to push that idea of everlasting father. This is, has to do with time. Jesus, his rule, his reign will be everlasting. Um, uh, this is similar, although not exactly, to Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 where God the father is called the ancient of days. That his rule is ancient. It's from everlasting. Jesus Christ as well will be from everlasting. But then three, and also it's where we go back to that that title of father. This tells us a lot about the kind of ruler Jesus would be. An everlasting father. He would reign and rule as a father. Jesus would love his people, would serve them as a father would his own children. Perhaps Isaiah was thinking of David and God's promise to him that through your throne, through your descendants, through your children, someone will sit on this throne how long? Forever. Everlasting Father, you will be the one of the line of David. You will be the one to sit on the throne forever. You will be the one to fulfill that which has been promised. Thus it 
can be said that this beautiful statement, everlasting Father, really tells us who Jesus would be, how He would rule, how long He will rule, in what way would He rule, in whose line He would rule. And I believe that this is the right understanding because Isaiah bakes it right in. Verse 7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. What's another way of saying that? Everlasting. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Another way of saying that again, everlasting. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It will be done by God himself. And so really, that is a powerful statement right there, just those two words. But it doesn't stop there. I feel like a game show host. He's not done yet because he rounds off this verse, verse 6, as prince of peace. Prince of Peace. And I, and I will make one more comment here um, before we get into the fact that he is Prince of Peace. Uh, just from a literary perspective, it's just too neat not to share. Um, if you look, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. It doesn't say, and his names shall be called. It says his name shall be called. We've, we've talked about this as we've studied the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can't break God into parts, into categories. Who God is is who God is all the time, fully and completely. He is, and this is appropriate for all this to be one title, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we should read it that way. He is all of that and more. But it's not just that He is these things individually, but He is this collectively. So as He's Wonderful Counselor, He is Mighty God. As he is mighty God, he's everlasting Father. And as he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, he is Prince of Peace. And what message would you want more if you're described as a nation of gloom and darkness? Like, what would you want to hear more as a nation that's turning away from God, that has a ruler that rejects God, that rejects his promises? What would you want to hear if you're a nation on the brink of war and conquered by your enemies, then you have a God who's a God of peace? That's what Isaiah is promising. Again, and we've spent a great deal of time in John. If we looked at John, John chapter 14, Jesus rounds out that chapter. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus Christ brings peace. He brings peace. But it's not just peace from the wars that come against the people of God. It's not just victory over those that oppose us. Jesus Christ comes, He lives, He dies, and then He, he um, rises again to bring ultimate peace. And that's the peace of deliverance from your sin. The greatest war that you have, the greatest conflict, the greatest struggle. There is doom and gloom out in the world, but there's also doom and gloom in your heart. You need peace there too. You need peace there all the more. And that can only come from wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. You and I need this more than anything else. And we praise God. And we're, here we are as, as, as post-New Testament Christians. We know that this happened. Just as sure as Isaiah was when he wrote it in the past tense, we can be sure now because we have seen it. It's been written before us. A promise of hope, a promise 
of salvation if we but trust in the Savior. They looked forward to the Savior to come. We look back to the Savior who has come. And I'll just close with this. If I can speak boldly and, and very cautiously as Isaiah did. God so loves you. If you were a child of God this day, whether you were at a stage at this point where you're professing him or not, he speaks it as if, as if it's already happened. He speaks it just like Isaiah did in the past tense. Why? Because in him it has. He's everlasting. He is a father who loves and cares. And he has prepared the way. And he is chasing you to bring you to himself. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, that is what we need. We need a savior. We need a counselor. We need a father. We need you, God. We need peace. There are wars going on. There are raging nations about us. There are dark things in our society. But what we need most is peace from our own hearts. Peace from our sin. We need salvation. Isaiah knew where it would come from. It would come from you. We know this day, Lord, that it comes only from you. And so we plead with you, O Lord, save us. Save us from our sin. Forgive us of our sin. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us to yourself that we may be forgiven, and that we may have and we may know peace. O Lord, I pray this for everyone here this day, from our dear, sweet children, from Mildred, who was just baptized, to our oldest member here, and to those joining us online. Lord, would we know this peace. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth it contains and the hope it offers. May it continue to encourage us and give us hope for the days to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.